Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Allabest. One topic that I had hoped to cover on season three is the very tender and difficult topic of female genital cutting, also known as female genital mutilation and sometimes referred to as female circumcision. I had done quite a bit of reading on this subject in my class on international women's health and human rights. But I always felt uncomfortable in our class discussions because no one in our class came from a culture where this tradition was practiced. And so we were attempting to understand it from the outside. So I'm honored to welcome to the podcast today Maria Taher, who is an expert on this topic, both on a personal and academic level, and is a longtime activist against the practice of FGC. I want to welcome to the podcast today, Maria Taher. Thank you so much for being here with us, Maria. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. Happy to be here. So I'll read your professional bio first, and then I'll invite you to share some more of your personal story after that, if that's okay. Sounds good. Maria Taher has worked in gender-based violence for over a decade in the areas of teaching, research, policy, program development, and direct service. In 2018, Maria received the Human Rights Storytellers Award from the Muslim American Leadership Alliance. In 2020, she was recognized as one of the six inaugural grant recipients for the Crave Foundation for Women. Since 2015, she has collaborated with the Massachusetts Women's Bar Association to pass legislation to protect girls from FGC. After starting a Change.org petition and gathering over 400,000 signatures, Massachusetts became the 39th state in the United States to pass this legislation. As of 2021, Maria serves as an expert consultant for the Department of Justice addressing female genital cutting technical assistance project. She is also the program strategist for SOAR's transformative storytelling project for South Asian survivors of gender-based violence. Maria is also a writer and has contributed articles and stories to many publications, including NPR, Huffington Post, and Brown Girl Magazine. She graduated with an MFA in creative writing from Lesley University, and she also holds a master's in social work from San Francisco State University and a BA from UC Santa Barbara in religious studies. So it's so happy for all that you're bringing to this conversation. And I'm wondering if you can kind of share some more about your background, where you grew up and your family of origin and what brought you to this work. Yeah, happy to do that. So again, my name is Maria and I was born actually in Iowa, <laughs> but my family moved from there to California when I was nine. So I was raised in California and grew up there. And my parents are immigrants from India. My dad came over in his 20, you know, they've been here for majority of their life. So very well situated into the U.S. now. And yeah, I grew up in a very multicultural, multilingual household in California and throughout my upbringing, have a very global family. So it just was very privileged in that sense of being able to be witness to many different cultures and many different traditions. And I think that that really attributed to what led me into the work that I did. I saw the beauty in this multicultural world that we have, but I also saw how particular traditions can cause harm too. And all cultures, all communities have harm. So it was something that I recognized just the power of culture and what that means over 
over a person, over a gender as well, too. And I went to school for religious studies. Ironically, the more I studied religion, the more I decided I was agnostic. But the more I actually like fell into loving religion and just recognizing that it's very influential and has a lot of power over people, too. And I then slowly at some point realized I was very interested in gender-based violence work and started my social work degree and kept just getting drawn into gender-based violence issues, gender equity. And over time, I decided to do some field work with the Department of Status of Women in San Francisco, which is a city government department there. And they funded a lot of violence against women initiative programs as they were known then. And I also just wanted to pursue research on female genital mutilation or cutting at the time too. So for my thesis in grad school, I decided to do a study on female genital mutilation cutting or FGM. I, t- I tend to call it FGMC or FGC. So, and in particular, I wanted to do it because it, that is one of the issues that I've known about my entire life. Uh, and it's because I come from a community that practices it. And so I was very well aware that it continued. And it was something, though, that wasn't really talked about in terms of it happening to people born in the U.S. and or people outside of the African context or African diaspora context. And even when I started to understand, which was in high school, I remember doing research at that time or even just kind of trying to find something on the internet and there really wasn't anything out there again. And so it felt like even though I knew about this, I didn't really because my experience was not shared in the public realm. And that really led me to do more work on this issue. I went into gender-based violence work for, well, I am still in gender-based violence work, but I, I went into domestic violence work for a while. I did a lot of policy work too, and community-based outreach and education. And when I went back to do my my MFA, my creative writing degree, that's the other part of my brain is I just, I love creative writing too. And I feel like it's a way to express yourself and really heal and tell stories and relate to other people. And as I was doing that, other women read some of the work that I did on my FGC study. So after I finished my thesis, I decided to write an article about it. And I really wanted to just highlight that this is not something that is done only by, there's a lot of misconceptions about it. And I know we'll talk about more, but that it's not done just by uneducated folks. It's something that's highly educated women might continue to. It's something that has no discrimination in terms of like who it could be happening to. It's a much more complicated form of gender-based violence than people recognize. And that led to the other co-founders of SAO finding me. And eventually we started this organization, SAO, and really recognizing there was a need for that to create this space where people could share their stories because it just didn't exist. And now I'm here. essentially. But Mm -hmm. yeah, the biggest thing I think about me is just that I've always been interested in people and understanding how they think, how they operate, how culture, religion really interacts with that in our identities too. And that's, I've been doing that my entire life. Wow. 
That's that's really wonderful. And I do want to highlight for listeners too, as I was preparing for this episode, I read a lot. There's like a blog on the SAO website. So you can read different people's stories and learn more about female genital cutting in terms of like data and stuff, but then also people's stories. So could you tell or share that website? It's just SAO.org. Yes. Yes. Okay. S-A-H-I-Y-O dot org. O-R-G. And what does that word mean, SAO? Yeah. So SAO is a Bora Gujarati. So the community I grew up in is known as the Dadi Boras. And Gujarati is language from South Asia. The, the actual word is Saheli, which means friends. But so that's why I say it's a Bora Gujarati word, SAO. It means female friends. And it really reflects the way that our organization, the co-founders, wanted to approach our work is really thinking about it being community-based and approachable and really about us coming together to share. Mm, that's beautiful. I didn't know that this whole time as I've been reading on, on there. I, I somehow missed that. That's really, really, really lovely. Well, let's dive into kind of the the content of female genital cutting. And I, I want to start with just the basics in case listeners have not heard of this or maybe have heard of it, you know, with different terminology. It used to be referred to as female circumcision, I think. And mm-hmm. I'll just ask you the most basic question of what is it? What is female genital cutting? And maybe you can explain the different types there are. There are different levels that happen. And, and just a little content warning for listeners, you can see from the title, this is not a particularly easy topic to talk about, and this will involve discussions of violence. So take care of yourselves accordingly, and it might not be the best episode for very young listeners. But but don't hold back, Maria. Just tell us exactly what it is, and, and we can talk about all of the implications of it, too. Yeah, definitely. So female genital cutting is Basically, any alteration to the female genitalia for non-medical purposes. And there are various forms of female genital cutting. The WHO, or the World Health Organization, has essentially classified it into four categories. These categories are very broad in themselves. And they range from type 1, which is considered one of the least physically severe, does not mean it doesn't have any negative impacts, but it just means in terms of what is actually done to the female genitalia. So anything from part or all of the clitoral hood to part of the clitoris can be removed, and that is considered type 1. Then type 2 becomes more physically severe, meaning that, again, the same anything in type 1 can happen. So part or all of the clitoris can be removed. And then also part or all of the labia minora. And then type three can be the most severe, which essentially can include types one and two. And then it also can be essentially all of the external genitalia can be removed. And then it's stitched back up to leave one hole for menstruation, urination, and sexual intercourse. And that is oftentimes known as infibulation too. So again, they range in severity. And then there is a type four. Type four, those in other categories. So anything that essentially doesn't fit into the first three types. So this can include piercing, cauterizing, pricking, any other type of genital modification as well for, for non-medical purposes. 
and they're very broad. So it's just really, I think, what's important to know and acknowledge is that female genital cutting is not one particular procedure. It is a whole range of different physical alterations that can happen to a woman. And then the type that has happened depends on that culture, the community, the geographical region that person is in, the person that is performing it on that girl. So there are a whole host of reasons for how it occurs and why a person might get a specific one. I also want to say that most people, when they have heard of FGMC, they think of infibulation, so type 3. But from the research we know at this point, it actually accounts about 10%. So most cases are type 1 or type 2. So that's just also important to, to recognize and acknowledge. Okay. So, yeah, speaking of the different regions of the world where it's practiced and how that kind of determines the different types, could you talk about some of the differences based on location and, and maybe talk about how old the girl is usually when, when she has this done, and then who is the person who performs the procedure? So FGMC can happen to anybody who is identified as a girl and is anywhere from birth to adolescence, although it can happen to adult women as well, too. And it's something that it, it depends on the region, again, as a world in, in terms of who you see it happening to. Typically, you'll see it happening from five to seven. And the Bora community that I grew up in, the age was seven that you always heard about it happening. And when it was performed in Indonesia, it oftentimes comes along with a birthing package. So it's actually something that is legally sanctioned and something in hospitals. And, and so it happens in infancy. And then there. Whoa, wait, sorry. I've never heard of this before. So just yeah. like a like a circumcision on a boy happens in the hospital, yeah. they will perform it in the hospital on a girl, like if the parents want them to or what? How does that? Yeah. Indonesia oh, has wow. a really high prevalence rate, too. And some interesting things is that, again, misconceptions around who it happens to. And, and we do know it had, happens in Asia. I'm going to jump a little bit into statistics. I just kind of want to bring this up, though. Mm -hmm. So there is a global statistic that FGMC, the global figure is 200 million, that 200 million women and girls are impacted by FGMC. However, this statistic is only based on 32 countries in the world. And these are 32 countries where FGMC has been measured by national level survey data mostly within Africa and the Middle East. Before the number was 200 million, it was 140 million. And that was within 30 countries. There were no Asian countries. Indonesia was added and the number jumped to 200 million. Wow. And that's the addition of just one country within Asia where there was recognition. And this happened in the last 10 years that that, num that country was added. And we realize that it is actually a huge, huge issue. And it is very prevalent in Indonesia as well, too. But I share that because FGMC has been hidden in so many ways on so many levels. And one of those ways is just even the data that we have out there and at some of the highest institutions thinking about the UN. We had another study that was done a couple of years ago from 
three organizations, and they found that FGMC has been reported in 92 countries around the world. So there's a huge gap in terms of the data collected by the UN and what we actually know in terms of where it happens. It's just that some countries, the only source of information might be anecdotally from those survivors or maybe media reports. So there's no national survey. So it hasn't been Mm -hmm. counted towards a global figure. So I I do want to bring that up because I think, again, like when we talk about FGMC and the prevalence, there's this notion that it happens only in Africa or, you know, in small villages. And not to say it doesn't happen in those places, but it also is much more broad than that. And it's just something that's been hidden. And that silence has worked in many different ways, including just who acknowledges it happens. (laughs) So tell us a little bit more about, again, those questions of who uh, performs these procedures. And again, like you're saying, that's going to vary a lot, it sounds like, depending on where you are, because I had never heard of it practiced in a hospital, for example, until this very moment. So yeah, tell us a little bit about that variety. Yeah, so FGMC can happen for a very long time. And traditionally, the way it happened was by midwives or traditional cutters within a community. So they were the ones, and it could it could be that it was passed down generation by generation, but they were the ones that, that actually did it. So it could be in unhygienic cir- circumstances and different tools could be used from razor blades to other sharp materials as well. However, we've seen a change and I believe in the U.S. we actually see more of, more of it this way. And Indonesia, as I said, as I mentioned, it can happen in hospitals. It's been medicalized, meaning that healthcare providers are performing it, and typically healthcare providers that are belonging to a community that practices it. It'll be done in secret, depending on where it's happening. So in Indonesia, there is no law against it, but here in the U.S., there are laws against it. And actually, in 2017, there was a doctor that was charged with performing it in Michigan. And that broke a lot of stereotypes when that happened because it was a doctor. So that just shattered a lot of people's illusions around who performs it. Not people who are in those communities. People who are in the communities are advocates. We're aware of it. But it also was somebody who was born and educated in the U.S. It was somebody who was from a South Asian background or her her ancestors were. So it just broke a lot and very educated, too. So, again, broke a lot of stereotypes around who can happen to. And it was slowly revealed that, that, you know, hundreds of girls across the years had been cut too. And that's just of somebody we're, we're aware of. It was the first ever federal case under the federal law that somebody was brought up on those charges too. But I do believe that we're seeing more and more medicalization of FGMC almost as in a way to try to make it safer that that's kind of the thinking behind it is if a medical professional does it, it's safer, but it's still, it's never safe. It's happening to girls that are too young to consent to what's happening to them. And also you can't know the impact that it has. The, the nerves in your genital area and your, your clitters are so sensitive. And I've had other doctors tell me this too, is just that you can have much more extensive damage than even is seen with the naked eye. So there are, there are survivors out there who, if they have some of the like least severe forms, might go to a doctor and they don't see any harm, but it doesn't mean there hasn't been harm there physically mm-hmm. too. 
And you're saying with these cases in the U.S., like the one in 2017, like this will be a doctor who's, you know, has a medical license to practice whatever field they're in. Right. And then. Yeah. But secretly, like a family will approach them and say, hey, can you you're a doctor. Can you do the procedure? And they'll like yeah. secretly perform it in somebody's home. Yeah. No, it was in a health clinic. So it's something. But it was Even done in the like. U- it was in a health clinic, but it was done Holy after God. hours. So it's, again, all done secretively. So, I mean, right. it could be in somebody's home. But this particular case, it was in another physician's health clinic after hours. So it is something. But I want to also add something, something that I forgot to add. FGMC is not new to the U.S. either, meaning that it's not something that other communities have brought from other countries there's this history that's just been forgotten in the u.s clitoridectomies which is generally type one so it's a form of fgc have been performed in the u.s and in many countries in europe up until the 1960s to treat women for hysteria lesbianism and to stop masturbation and we've had a survivor who is huge advocate she's amazing she has come out and shared her story and it's something that again it was in medical textbooks actually blue cross blue shield covered it in by insurance too so it was something that it's just it's it's such a hidden practice in so many ways but when you dive deeper you start to kind of understand this idea of controlling your own body or a woman's body through modification of their genitalia it has this long history and it's just, it's sh- kind of shocking when you really start it's, to. I'm shocked. I had yeah. no idea. Oh my gosh. Well, I was going to ask you a different historical question, but I'm so glad you brought that up first. Cause yes, I, I mean, I've done a bit of reading on this. I took a women's health and human rights class a few years ago in grad school and did a lot of deep reading and I did not know this. So I'm so glad you brought that out, but I was going to ask more about like the roots of FGC, one thing that I've learned, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I I did learn about it mostly in an African and Middle Eastern context. But what I learned was that it's practiced within Islam, but it predates Islam, right? These were traditions that happened before Islam came to these areas. Oh, yeah, for sure. Do we know where it came from and then how it got to all the different regions where it's practiced today? Yeah. So... FGC is something, yeah, it predates all the major Abrahamic religions. So it predates Judaism, Christianity, Islam. And it's something, there are various theories around how it emerged. There is evidence that it's been done in Egypt and on mummies, actually. So we've seen it there. There have been theories that the Romans practiced it on their slaves as a way to control not just sexuality, but the idea of like, pregnancy, particularly in the slave trade. And as that was happening, there also, though, were ideas around it being something that was done to the elites. The thought was that the elites were doing it, the royals. And then it was something that more the common lay people started emulating as as a way that we were seeing that was like a social standing type of ritual. And so that was one way it might have like been passed down to the general population as well. But there are, yeah, various theories, very old custom. (laughs) So again, it is something that even though maybe today it might be associated with certain, and I want to really emphasize that's another misconception that it's, it's an Islamic practice. And the thing is that it 
might be justified in a few different Islamic communities or cultures or some religions, but it doesn't mean it's a, an Islamic practice. Also, same thing. There are Christian communities that we know practice it too. Even here in the U.S., that's another thing I didn't mention was we actually know it's happening in some fundamentalist Christian community, white communities here too. And that was something that even shocks me a few years ago when, and then I realized I shouldn't be shocked and I'm realizing this is more prevalent than I knew. But again, yes. So it's just really, I just want to emphasize that that religion can be used as a justification within a community, but it's not connected to the origins of why this started. So hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So one more question about just kind of like the technical parts of how this is done and kind of the medical, well, not medical, but the physical aspect of it. I mean, like you mentioned before, it's done to control women's sexuality. And obviously, if they're cutting out the clitoris, it's to keep this girl or woman from experiencing sexual pleasure, meaning that then she won't have kind of a sexual drive, right? So what are some of the physical effects? Like you mentioned a little bit, like those, I mean, obviously those nerve endings are so, so sensitive. Can you just talk about some of the the physical and then the psychological and emotional effects that this has on girls and women? Yeah. So FGMC, it really depends on the type that happens and then the environment. But some of the health impacts can be Bleeding, severe bleeding, infection, frequent UTIs were actually, I remember there was a urologist a few years ago reached out because she wanted to do a study seeing that maybe even folks who get type one, there might be having a lot of health issues around UTIs. Because I think a lot of times there's a thought process that type one, there might not be as many physical impacts depending on the type you get done. And if it's if it looks like nothing's been done, but even with amongst those types, there can be physical impacts. But difficulties in childbirth, difficulties having sexual intercourse. I've heard many survivors talk about menstruation issues, even though we don't know for sure the connection impact with that. But yes, unfortunately, I mean, all of those things are unfortunate, but also there have been cases where it's led to death too. And Emotionally, mental health, that I hear about all the time, again, regardless of type. Often, there are many survivors who will tell me it's the emotional, psychological impact that lasts so much longer for them, even if they're, they have a lifelong health complications because of their FGMC. But it's the fact that if you're old enough to remember, you have trusted individuals, maybe in your family, that have come and taken you to have this done. And that sense of betrayal, that fear, that, that trust that's being broken, those can have these long-lasting impacts on a survivor as well, too. So I've heard about like PTSD. I've heard about depression, anxiety, trouble sleeping, generalized like body ache and pain, um, psychosomatic type of also impacts as well, too. So it's just it's a whole range of different issues that can occur. Yeah, it makes sense. I know that it's just some of the anecdotes, the kind of the the cases that I read about, um, where I'll, sometimes it's like presented to this young girl as like, we're going to have a party for you. And she's like seven and she shows up 
and the party is that then she's held down like by her grandma or something while someone else she trusted in her family cuts her and it wasn't explained to her what was happening. Would you be comfortable sharing any stories? Yeah, they range so much. What you just shared is definitely one of the stories that I've heard. I want to also say there are survivors out there that don't have many memory of what has happened to them. And if you think about trauma, one of the ways we do cope with trauma is blocking out painful memories. So it's not, you know, unusual to hear that as well. And I've heard survivors who have talked about they don't remember what happened, but in learning about it have just had to deal with that realization and that impact and have had to almost like a PTSD because they it just everything they perceived was different. I've also had other people who suddenly, you know, this story comes up often, particularly in college. A lot of students that have been in anthropology classes where they might learn about this practice recognize that it happened to them. I've had oh. that story multiple times and then everything kind of oh. comes back and just floods over them. And yeah, I've and maybe it's not just an anthropology class, but I, that's what I'm remembering is a couple of people have shared those stories. But I've heard often people are like, oh, we didn't learn about it really until college or that's when I started thinking about it or when I was sitting in this class. And you just never know really where you're going to learn about it, hear about it, or if there's a survivor. And no one really in that classroom probably realize that they were talking about as an abstract thought. Because again, when it was being taught, it was being taught as this tradition that happens in this faraway culture, religion. There, I've had stories where people have talked about, yeah, going to a health clinic or being told that they had to get a, a worm or kind of like an insect removed. There have been, depends on the culture and community too, but some instances where it's celebrated other instances where it's not really celebrated and just kind of hurried along, but you're supposed to grunt through the pain. And it's just, it's so varies. They're all, they all are connected, but they also are just so different. The stories, one from an, one from the next. Could I ask what the stories were that you heard growing up in your community of origin? Like you said, you kind of grew up knowing that it was a part of your culture. What did that sound like to you as you grew up? Well, for me, it was very normalized. I mean, I don't, I, I underwent, I actually underwent it too, but I don't really think, I didn't really think much of it until I was in high school. It was just so normal. Everybody underwent it. So it wasn't something that I questioned. And it wasn't until another person who was really negatively impacted. And I remember they used the word female genital mutilation. And that was the first time in my head I was starting to think about it more and then learning more about it. And I think it just depends again. Like some people it's remember every single detail and relive it and its impact. It's part of the reason we created SAO was so people could share all their various stories and connect and I and but then there are other people, like I said, that maybe hadn't really thought about it and have, have said that, like, they don't want it to continue, but they don't know if it's impacted them or not. And how can you know if it impacts your sexuality? If you, particularly though, I hear this all the time, like I was seven, like, you know, I don't know if it impacted my sexuality at seven or anything too. 
So it's just a lot of un- like not knowing what has happened to you. I think a lot of questions. But the thing is, you don't talk about it really in communities. The community I, I grew up in, you were told it was a woman's issue or you were told you needed to keep it quiet. And that was drilled into you. And so that's part of the reason it continues generation after generation, this idea of silence. And it was very common for men not to know that it happens. And it's changing now, I think, really with social media and more survivors coming out and sharing their stories. But it was not unusual to hear men say, I had no idea this happened in the Bora community. I actually won. So in our work, we also, we engage the entire community. So that means also engaging men too. And I remember one person wrote a story on our blog about how they had no idea about this. And then once things in the news started happening with this like Michigan case, they one day had a conversation with their mom who was pretty devout and but the mom very much disagreed with this practice and told her son about the practice because he was asking and it ended up being kind of a bonding moment for them too but it was something he did not know at all about and only learned about in his adult life too even if you haven't had it done because there are people that are deciding not to and that's really amazing but there's a lot of pressure that can happen and it's not uncommon to hear mothers and not just mothers but maybe others in the family tell their their daughters to just pretend you've had it done if anybody asks pretend oh wow so there's silence there too this idea that like you can't even acknowledge you haven't had it done because of repercussions of Maybe someone would force you to have it done or maybe, you know, you'd be looked at differently. And so you keep it quiet in that way. And that silence also reinforces it, continuing it, because there's a belief. There's actually a term. It's called pluralistic ignorance, but it's belief that everyone's having it done. So that's why we need to do it. But in reality, maybe nobody wants to have it done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so this is a way that a mother could protect her own daughter, but then it doesn't challenge the system, right? Exactly. So, yeah. Oh, I I get it. I came from a very high demand religion where there's a lot of conformity and a lot of everybody looking at others and for the signals and that everybody's kind of in the club. And it is very, very, very hard to make any departures from that. So that leads me to to ask you, too. I'd love to ask you what that was like for you to speak out against it if you come from even a family that practices it. Has that been hard for you in your own family and community? It has at times. I'm in a very different place now than I was probably like six years ago, even. Uh, I am in a much more comfortable place now, but there have been moments where there were arguments and my parents are against it. And really there was, there was no federal law in the U.S. when it, when it happened to me either. And there was no like, internet there was no awareness it was very much you did what you your family members told you and so my mom had it done because she had heard from her family members and she actually my mom told me later on that she she had to have another female relative come with us because she was afraid of seeing me in pain and didn't want to see me and like 
couldn't have it done. And and I actually remember her like holding me and trying to like comfort me too. I don't have a lot of memories, but I do remember that. And I I get it too. Like it was just because, you know, she was coming from women who were telling her like all of, yeah, yeah, you have to have it done. And she wasn't hearing any opposition to that idea that like that you can't have it done. So, and again, no, there were no laws. There was no like, survivor movement really at that time and it's very different context now than it was for her it happened and then like my dad had no idea about it and he has many sisters and his sisters decided not you know some of his sisters decided not to have it done to their generation to their kids but my dad had no idea until he learned about this from my mom and it was just something that it felt like, oh, okay, I guess if it's a tradition or culture, even the idea that I even questioned it hadn't come up yet. And I, but now it depends on like who it is, but I have had instances where there are family members who, it's kind of, it can be in the Bora community, in the Bora context at less, it's viewed as like, if you're attacking it, you're attacking the entire community. And so those who are really devout in the community, who are the ones that don't question anything, very much following everything, they will oftentimes be upset that you're sharing, like you're airing out your community's dirty laundry, but, or just like you're giving us a bad reputation. And so we have seen that happen. And there's often a dismissal where trying to say that what happens in the Bora community, Katna, because it's type one and it's like just a piece of the clitoral hood, at least is what is explained is what happens, even though I've actually heard stories of it ranging, that it's not that severe and it's not mutilation. And oftentimes the mutilation they're referring to is again, that stereotype that I mentioned, like that it's always infibulation, that it's always like what, and there's actually almost like, not almost it is racism that's underlying it too where it's it's like we're we're not doing what they're doing there so we're civilized mm. we're okay we would never harm our girls when, like how could you even say that this is the same as mutilation and actually can i share a story like Please. i just i remembered yeah. so i was thinking about when you were talking about opposition and the story just came up in my head I think for me, one of the biggest challenges has been just in this work is the more emotional toll it has when the, what I refer to pro FGC folks come out at you and there are pro FGC folks. And I remember, so one of the projects that we do at SEO is this digital storytelling project where we have survivors come together and they get to tell their stories. They get to create a little script. They get to learn some video editing and they make a three minute video about any story related to FGC that they want to tell. And the first, we've done seven cohorts, but the first cohort we did was in Berkeley, California. And then we did a small screening at a, at a public library of those videos that came out of that workshop. And we advertised the the video, the screening, and that was going to happen. And we did a panel after the videos were all shown. And so like I was on the panel too, and then two partner organizations that were working with us. And then I suddenly remembered, I finished answering a question 
And the Bora community has a specific clothing that they'll wear. And it's a kind of sign, particularly those who are really, really devout will will wear it all the time. It's become kind of a required outfit. It wasn't required when I was growing up, but now it has become. So they walked in and I immediately recognized them as being Bora because they were wearing the outfits. And they came and just suddenly sat in the back. This was during the panel, the question and answer. So they had missed all the videos and they were listening. And then I remember that the man raised his hand first and he just asked me, he's like, my question to you, if this is so harmful, then where is the data? Where's the research proving that this is harmful? And there isn't a ton of data on research, but that was, that's just like, that's, kind of an approach that's been taken is just like there's no data showing it's harmful so it's not harmful you guys are just like making it up basically mm. and I just froze actually and I could not talk and luckily like my colleagues that like were also my friends they took over and they were able to talk but I just did not know that this was going to happen and I was just triggered in that moment and really just could not speak and was like feeling myself getting angry because I knew they were there to rile me up and to like to basically not be supportive in this environment, but to basically, you know, disavow like all the survivors that had shared their stories. And they didn't even see the stories. And then the woman, she was from the Bora community. She had been cut as well. And she raised her hand too and was talking and they knew who I was. And that's the thing too, is like a lot of advocates who come from communities too can be sort of tracked or followed and so I remember her being like you're Bora right and I was not wearing the Bora outfit or anything but I knew she knew who specifically I was and and then she's like you know like I've been cut and my friends have and we're all fine but and basically it was just like how can you know like saying it's the same thing as like domestic violence like that just puts it in such a bad light and like she couldn't believe that we would be doing that so this happened and I was just like frozen and luckily I was, I was just scared they were going to come talk to me directly. And I was like, I can't handle this. And even though I'm an advocate and I've had conversations, but I just, in that moment was so caught up guard and so angry that I'm like, that I, this was happening. And luckily afterwards, all the other people in that crowd, everyone was witnessing this interaction. Mm -hmm. And there were quite a few folks that went up to them and kind of just like, ensure that they didn't come to talk to me and kind of help protect me in a way. And I was very supportive of that. And they left eventually. So it wasn't, wasn't a violent interaction, but it was combative in, yeah. in just kind of the verbal thing. I, yeah. So talking about opposition, I just remembered that that had happened. <laughs> That's awful. I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And I can totally just, I can imagine it that, and, and that you would just freeze and almost like your brain doesn't even at least when that's happened to me, like it's offline. Like I have no access to words or data, even if I know it. And yep. then afterwards I'm like, why didn't I say this? Why didn't I say this? And yeah, it just can catch you off guard like that. I'm so sorry. It's awful. Yeah. yeah thanks. <laughs> well, it's, it's really one of the other questions that I wanted to ask, and it's kind of been, it keeps coming up through the whole thing. So you just talked about a couple where the man and the woman were both defending the practice but you've mentioned several times that sometimes men didn't even know that this happened and so i mean this episode is as part of a series of breaking down patriarchy right so how is this 
a, a patriarchal issue. If it's women who practice it, almost 100% of the time is my understanding. It's, it's women who do it to women. And sometimes men even don't, don't even know, then how does it have roots in patriarchy? It's a very or does good it? question. Yeah. I mean, it varies community to community in terms of like how aware men are. And some other communities, for instance, like I know within, I believe it's the Somali community, I've had survivors who have told me stories where it impacts who they marry and you're brought up to believe not to marry an uncut woman because they aren't considered clean or they'll be promiscuous and they'll run around and they might be called a certain name and I can't remember the, the word for it if they're not cut. So there can be a shaming and stigma for not being cut as well too. And that is, again, even though it's something women are carrying on to women, there is this rooted in this idea of controlling your bodily integrity and the idea of your sexuality and that your sexuality is done for the pleasure of men, right? So this idea that, like, you have to be virginal, chaste, pure, and that FGC helps you so that you're ready or it increases your marriageability rate, your odds, so that you're considered more eligible too. It's a social standing type of thing. There have, again, like I, I mentioned, there are, there might be other reasons given for it, culture, tradition, religion, but there is this idea of control around it that you often hear about. And I think it's important to recognize that control is coming, it's in being enforced because of this certain stereotype around how a woman is supposed to be or behave, or this is the identity, this is how you achieve that. And it's happening to children who are too young to consent or fully understand what's happening to you as well, too. And it's really, again, even if you think about before the cutting is happening, this girls exposing her genitals to like strangers and yeah and that's something that you're typically taught you're not supposed to do and it's a, again before any of the cutting is happening that is that is occurring and I think if we even think about it that way that would be considered abusive if you explain it in that type of context too so, yeah that's sexual abuse just that moment I had not thought of that either yeah, yeah. totally so one quote that I wanted to share from a blog post on the website was a woman who said that the messaging she got throughout her life were things like this, quote, this will help your marriage. And this is to make sure women's urges are controlled, or these things are done to make sure you are loyal to your husband, or women need to appease their husband. And she said that these messages that went along with the cutting but weren't even necessarily present at the moment she was cut, right? But it was the messaging that went along with it that did, she said, even more psychological harm than the cutting itself. And so just to this, you know, this point, this topic of how it comes from patriarchy, but then sometimes it is women that, like, they just keep the ball rolling and it's not even necessarily the men in the moment who are actually doing it anymore. One thing mm -hmm. that comes to my mind is like, even with beauty standards around the world, like we're going to have an episode on foot binding in China. And I even think about like plastic surgery, for example, in the United States, in the community where I live, or women starving themselves to be super skinny. And then if, if I talk to the actual men in my life, like my husband or my brother or my dad, they're like, 
oh my gosh, I feel so sad. Like, why do women do this to themselves? And women, it comes from patriarchal beauty standards from like yeah. hundreds, from hundreds of years of women needing to be, you know, beautiful. So they would be selected by a man to be taken care of by that man because they had no other option in this world. Right. And so the practices have exceeded their expiration date socially where it, like it, it literally doesn't even make sense anymore. And we now do it to ourselves and each other, regardless of whether the men in our lives actually require it. Yeah. It's become know. a social norm. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, yes. yeah. Social norms are powerful. Tradition is powerful. Yeah. And it's something that I'm always saying tradition is not easy to, there can be beautiful traditions, but traditions are also something we stick to fiercely <laughs> and it's not easy to end a harmful yeah. tradition and that's what fgc is a harmful tradition yeah okay so i i so appreciate this this episode and you're helping to like bring so much nuance and so much variety to it and helping us you know understand and have compassion for people who practice it while still wanting to end the practice, right? And to to recognize how it feels like with from the point of view of the people who who engage in these practices and how complicated it can feel. So can you tell us about some initiatives to end this practice? Yeah, sure. So SEO, we like I mentioned, we do a lot of digital or we do a lot of storytelling type of work. And that is something that we're constantly looking for support to be able to host more workshops and forums for impacted community members to come together so that they can have safe spaces. Creating safe spaces is huge. Every single time we have an event, somebody will come up, if not more than one person, and just tell me I've never been able to talk like this with other people that have been related. They've just never had that opportunity because they had to be quiet. They couldn't rock the boat in their community. So it's just it's amazing how much that can do for healing. <laughs> but we also have a male engagement program, which is called Bio, which is kind of a play on SEO, but for brothers. And... Mm -hmm. We do a lot of research too, but I want to, there are also other organizations. I think when folks don't realize is there is a growing movement in the U.S. when it comes to FGMC too. So for the first time a couple of years ago, the Department of Justice, Office of Victims of Crime gave, gave out some funding to a few organizations across the U.S. to do some work around prevention and intervention. So prevention meaning education outreach. How do we reach out to these communities? SEO does a lot of prevention work too. We run some campaigns, digital media campaigns and trying to get community voices, but other organizations are doing that too. There are research going on and then there's also trainings and, and we also do some trainings, but around how to educate healthcare providers, for instance, who might come in contact with survivors or other frontline professionals, social workers, midwives like other folks that might come in contact and that's huge because for a very long time there wasn't recognition that fgc occurred in the u.s and then when there was just recognition a lot of the funding that the u.s government gave was for international programs so the fact that we um, actually have funding domestically now is a huge huge thing and it is kind of amazing to see that there's there's actually an interagency group of a few different federal government departments that are really thinking about this issue and trying to integrate it into some of their existing programs around gender-based violence. And I just kind of want to mention there's a lot more work to be done, but I wanted just to help highlight that there 
there's a shift that's occurring and it's it's very new. It's like in the last 10 years overall, but we are seeing more work there. And there is a U.S. network to end FGMC. So if anyone's interested in really trying to understand what's going on across the U.S., I definitely recommend Googling them. If you Google U.S. network to end FGMC, you can find the page and see what resources exist and then also kind of learn some of the latest news. Always check out Sayo's website, of course. But if you are curious about the broader movement in the United States, that's a great resource. Fabulous. And I'm cer- I'm sure it's on Sayo's website, too. But as I was preparing for this episode, too, I was looking at the UNICEF website and the UN, the United Nations. I know they made like February 6th the day of zero tolerance towards female genital cutting. And there are these international orga- organizations, too, that are working to end it. And so that's a place to look as well. Is there anything else you'd like to share, Maria, that we haven't gotten to yet? Yeah, one thing I want to share, and this is really, I have to say, because survivors have come to, uh, come to us and have really helped us to understand this better, but there are survivors out there who identify as non-binary, and they have undergone FGC. And they underwent FGC because they were looked at as being a girl. And it's something that it helps me to realize and it's helped my organization, Sarah, to realize is that another impact of FGC is that it takes away a person's ability to really identify with their gender identity. And that's a whole other consequence of FGC that I think we need to bring more attention to and recognize. And so I'm I'm very thankful for those survivors that have come up and really talked to us and how they've said that even on the literature that's out there in FGC, always referring to girls and women, and sometimes they feel out of place in that recognition. So I do want to just uplift that point. When we think about FGC, recognizing that there are many that are undergoing it because they were identified as a girl, they were forced to to have this done to them. Mm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I just want to thank you so much for being here today, Maria, and I so admire your work. I so admire your courage in breaking the chain in, you know, in your own family, your own community. That is incredibly hard to do. And I just have so much respect for you. So thank you for your work. And thanks again so much for being here and sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you. I'm so glad I was able to have this conversation with you. Before I go, I'd also like to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibest for our social media. And thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can head over to our website at breakingdownpatriarchy.com and our Instagram account at bedownpatriarchy for additional content and resources for today's episode. And if you'd like to help support the podcast, please consider sharing it with others, posting about it on social media, and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's all for this week, but be sure to join us again next time as we continue to become more educated, informed, connected, and active on Breaking Down Patriarchy.